December is here already. I, it, it's crazy to even think about, at least in my world, that uh, 2021 is literally, December will fly by, um, it, it will, and so to think that 2021 is, is in the books, it's wrapped up, and we're on to 2022, and we've survived 2021. Um, not surprising, because we're not the ones in charge. Um, God is, and, and the more we put our hope and our faith and our trust and our, our everything, our lives in His hands, honestly, the easier this life gets no matter what we face. I was having a conversation with someone this week. You'll have to hear people say, uh, after church, you may have never ever said anything like this, but you might have walked out of service and, and been like, you know, I just didn't get anything out of today. All right, I just didn't get fed today. I just didn't get something along those lines. And, and someone and I were having a discussion this, this last week and we were just talking about that concept of, of the reality of why we're here on a Sunday morning. Um, and really, the only reason we're here on a Sunday morning is about what you can bring has nothing to do with anything I have to offer you. It's nothing to do with anything David or the rest of the worship team or anything else that happens in this facility. It's about what are you bringing to worship your Lord and Savior? What have you brought to the table? Now, he will gladly reward you, absolutely. He will bless you out of your mind for your presence here this morning and your opportunity to worship him. But it's what do we bring to the table? What do I bring before God this morning? And so if I find myself lacking, well, there's only one place to look, <laughs> right? And it's a hard truth, but it is the truth. So we're going to talk a little bit. We're backing up just a little bit today. We were in chapter 5 last week. We're going backwards to chapter 4 this week. I'll explain as we go here. Because the first two recorded miracles of Jesus are not mentioned in Luke. As a matter of fact, they're only mentioned in one place, and that is the beginning of the book of John. For some reason, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine, is not mentioned in the book of Luke. It is found in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We're not going to spend time on that miracle today. But the second miracle that he mentioned takes place just after that, as Jesus heals a royal official's son. Now, we don't know exactly who that is. We don't know exactly what that means. There's lots of speculation. But this royal official's son is back in Capernaum, and Jesus has just returned to Galilee from Jerusalem. And as he's approaching the town he's headed toward, a royal official comes to him whose son is very ill back home in Capernaum. The man begged Jesus for his help, and Jesus agreed and he simply said these words, you may go, your son will live. And that's John chapter 4, verse 50. It says, the man took Jesus at his word. How hard would that have been to do? You've gone pleading. Your son is on the brink of death. You've gone pleading to the only possible hope maybe that you have left in your entire life. You come up to him hoping to drag him back with you so they can go and heal your son. And this man just says, you know what? He'll be fine. Go ahead home. Wow, how do you deal with that? How do you react to that as the parent in the situation? That would have been hard to convince me to leave, to go back home. But this man obviously was a man of great faith. And it says that on his way home, he was met by some of his servants that told him that the boy's fever happened to leave him at the exact moment where Jesus said everything would be okay yesterday at the seventh hour. Now, I share all of that with you to get to this. I, I told you at the beginning of the series, I'm going to do my best to stick to Luke and not drag in stuff from the other Gospels, but you just have to know this moment is too important not to share. It's only the second miracle that Jesus had ever performed, and the reason I share it is because the word of Jesus is spreading very quickly. It says in John 4, verse 53, that the news traveled fast. The official and his household all believed, as you could imagine. 
Do you think they kept that a secret in the town of Capernaum? Or do you think maybe, just maybe, the servants that were witnesses to this event might have shared that with someone? This was a wealthy man. How about the doctors that he'd brought in to heal this young boy? Do you think maybe they went, huh? and began to share with other people what had happened? How about the other leaders within this community? Do you think anyone told anyone about this man named Jesus who healed this man's son, having never met him, not really knowing what was wrong, not seeing any of the symptoms whatsoever at all? The boy was made well, and this news traveled fast. And they didn't have Facebook. And they didn't have Twitter to spread those things out. This was just old-fashioned word of mouth, which, by the way, is still very, very fast, if you didn't know. Now, the reason I share this with you is because of what Jesus chooses to do next in the book of Luke, which is where we'll start. Later in his ministry, as a matter of fact, even later today in the text, Jesus often tells people, hey, don't tell anybody I just did that. Hey, just kind of keep that under wraps. Or maybe he'll just leave the community and uproot to somewhere else. Why did he do that? Lots of reasons. Probably didn't want too big of a crowd gathered. Things get suspicious when that happens. He had to protect his ultimate purpose. He could not have too many people around for fear of his very own life. He had to protect his ultimate destination, the cross. But in this case, in the case of the royal official son at Capernaum, Jesus literally does the exact opposite of everything he tells everyone else to do. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verse 31, that's where we'll start today, and that's where we'll be throughout the text today, is in Luke chapter 4, verse 31. If you've got that Luke journal, then grab that. If you don't, grab a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. Um, That would be awesome. He went down to Capernaum. Yes, he comes to the town just after healing the royal official's son. In other words, he kind of went, he sent the calling card ahead. I'll heal that kid, and then I'm going to come to town. Do you think people might have noticed he was there? Do you think anybody looked out and said, hey, wait a minute, isn't that the guy that healed his son? You see, people welcomed him in. The opposition to Jesus wasn't really forming yet. They're excited to have this Jesus with him. You might view today's text this way. This is a day in the life of Jesus. This is what it might have been like to spend a day with Jesus. It's just a typical day. It says that he came down to the town and he taught on the Sabbath. Nothing new here. If you flip backwards in verse 14 and 15, you'll find him doing the exact same thing in his hometown of Nazareth, teaching in the synagogue. Verse 31, he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teachings because of his words and the authority with which he used They were amazed at his teachings. Now, if you were with us last week, then you know that Luke shares this great miracle of Peter in the boat and this great message that he shared with the people, but he doesn't share with us what the message is. Here we find Luke again, telling us that Jesus is amazing all of the people with his teachings, and what did he teach? Don't know? Don't have a clue? All we have is the reaction of the audience. Now, Luke will use that word amaze throughout his gospel to describe the reaction of the people to the teachings of Jesus. You see, when you have God in the flesh speaking, you literally have the spoken word of God before you, spoken by, well, God himself. And I could see where that would be pretty amazing to hear that. But our question for us today is, should we have the same reaction Should we have that same reaction today when we hear or when we read the word of God ourselves, especially the words of Jesus? Should we be struck with that same awe 
and wonder just like those people were? And if we're not, why? Why aren't we? Have we just heard these words too many times so they just, just become a noise to us? Have they become just words on a page rather than what they're intended to be, the literal spoken words of our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord? Now, I will not lie to you and tell you I'm some, you know, professional Christian and I always read God's word and just every single time it's just like, yeah, I get it. Thank you, Jesus, for that. No, sometimes I read Jesus' words and I just read right over them and I move right on and I just keep on going. And you know what? I need to ask for forgiveness for that. Because when I do that, I am not allowing the word of God to fully penetrate my life. See, it alone can change my thoughts, my words, my actions, and even my life itself if I let it. But sometimes, sometimes I do let it in. And I'm sure you do as well. And you've all been witness to it before and you will be again. I will read through these passages sometimes 10 or 20 times throughout the course of a week in preparation for Sunday. And yet sometimes I read it and you can, you'll watch it, you'll see it, and it'll just grab a hold of me like it's the first time I've ever heard the words. And I'm amazed again and again and again at the truth that's revealed or the love that is shown, or the impact that these words, that this teaching, that that sign, that that wonder, that that event has had on the entirety of human history. <laughs> and when you do that, it becomes personal, and it becomes personal, it becomes real, and it has an impact in your life no matter how many times you hear those things. So today, even as Luke records the response of the crowd, we must remember that being amazed does not mean that you believe. It doesn't necessarily lead to faith. Jesus spoke with authority. Well, of course he did. He had authority like no one had ever had before. He spoke like no one had ever had before. He had complete mastery of the material. He was not reading some other author's material. No, no, no. He's the author. Even when he quotes the Old Testament, He's the author. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself is referred to as the very word of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He at was the word, the logos of God. He spoke with boldness. He spoke with absolute truth. All that he said was absolute truth. And when you do that, when you do that, you can speak with conviction. Did you know that? When you speak truth, you can speak with conviction. You don't have to be doubting. You don't have to be wavering. You don't have to tiptoe around the issue. When you speak truth, you can be certain in what you're saying. You can be confident. Jesus' message was fresh. It's true. No one ever spoken like that before. They couldn't. No one will ever speak that way again until he returns, just so you know. So how precious is it that we have his words recorded for us? So he's in the synagogue and he's teaching. The day in the life continues. People had heard that teaching that day, many for the very first time, they had never heard Jesus before, and they combined this fascination, this amazement with what they'd heard had happened, the miracles that had begun in particular in their own town with the royal official's son. Now, they're about to witness something incredible. As always, do not ever just read this as a text. It is a true story. This event really happened. Put yourself in the scene. Imagine being there. Something incredible is about to happen. You get up and you go to church on that particular Sabbath day. And as you're there, you're witness to what's about to happen. Verse 33. 
the synagogue where the man, there was a man who was possessed by a demon there that day, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his lungs, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. I, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Jesus' response, very simple, be quiet. Shut up is basically what he says to the demon. Get out of him. And the demon threw the man on the ground before them, and he came out without injuring him. And all the people were amazed once again. And they said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Yes, there was a demon-possessed man at church. Does that frighten anyone? It, would there be a better place for a demon-possessed man to happen to be than in the presence of the Holy Spirit of God, and in this case, in the presence of God himself? See, during Jesus' ministry, during the Messianic ministry, there was to be this rise of demon possession, and sure enough, there was. He encounters many who had been inhabited by such spirits. Luke mentions the word demons 23 times throughout his gospel. They are real. In case you didn't know that, today in 2021, demons are real. They still exist, and we humans are getting a little too friendly with them. We take them a little too lightly, and we entertain them in ways that we definitely should not be doing in our culture today, and there will be a price to pay, unfortunately. Now, in this case, we don't know, did the demons bring the man to the synagogue that right day to try to cause a disruption, or did the man go to church that day seeking possible healing? We don't know. We don't know. But it escalates very, very quickly, it says. It's interesting, always to me, that the demons of all people are the first people to recognize Jesus. Now, it actually makes sense if you think about the spiritual world thing, side of things. They would know who he is very quickly. Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. James records in, in chapter 2, verse 19, that even the demons believe and they shudder. They recognize God immediately and they are scared to death. But belief isn't enough. They clearly believe it's Jesus. Not only do they know Jesus, but they're scared of him. They're afraid of him, rightfully so. They know their place. Their immediate response is for Jesus to go away. Hey, how about you just get on out of here, Jesus? We're good. Thanks for stopping by. See you later. What do you want with us? Now, don't downplay this. Remember, you're in the crowd. You're at church that day. There's a man screaming at the top of his lungs at this teacher who is standing to teach in the synagogue. What are you doing in your seat right now? As you look around, are you wondering what on earth is going on? Are you wondering how this teacher is going to respond? What are you thinking as you see this demon-possessed man screaming at this new teacher? The demons want to know. They have a question. Have you come, Jesus, to destroy us? This is an important note for you and I to take into consideration. This question reveals something about the demons and particularly about Satan himself. They do not know the plans of God, period. Satan does not know God's plan for his ultimate destruction. And if he doesn't know that, then he does not know God's plan for you. He does not know the gifts that God has given you. All he can do is lie to you and deceive you into thinking that he does so he can manipulate you into not using those things for God's glory. So Jesus' response, very simple, be quiet. Shut up, you guys, <laughs> clowns. Shut up, it's over for you, you know that. And he tells them to go away. And this is what I love. 
The demons respond immediately in the only way they possibly could. They leave. There's no arguing. There's no questioning. There's no, can we just stay a little longer? It's immediate. There's no other option. This is the ultimate power of Jesus on display. The demons could not, even if they wanted to, respond any other way. They have to submit to his command. He has ultimate and complete and total authority over their very being. They are from the spiritual realm. They don't have an option. And that's why the people are so blown away. He just spoke the words, too, to be exact, and it happened. There were no rituals. There were no special ceremonies. There was no preparation. He just speaks, and the demons immediately listen and are forced to obey. They don't have a choice. And yes, that is amazing. (laughs) And it would have amazed everyone in attendance there that day. Man, I wish we knew what happened to that guy. I wish somehow, some way we knew what happened to that man who just had these demons cast out. Something tells me that he stuck around Jesus pretty closely for the next few years, maybe the rest of his life. We don't know. Suddenly then Luke just shifts focus. It's like, okay, next in the day of the life of Jesus. It's still an incredible miracle upcoming here, but there's some personal information. Remember, Luke is a details guy. And so he reveals some new insight into the life of the disciples that we do not know yet. In verse 38, it says this, Jesus left the synagogue, so same day, and he went to the home of Simon. Yes, Simon Peter, the same Simon we talked about last week in Chapter five, now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help out. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once, it says, and he began, and began to wait on them. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, if you've read the New Testament before, especially the life of Peter and things like that, did you know that this was the sequence of events? In my mind, it's always been Peter accepts Jesus Follows Jesus. Hey, Jesus, back home, my mother-in-law's sick. Come with me. Let's go help her out. How about that? That's not the way it went down. Not at all. Last week, we were in chapter five. I know we're going backwards. I promise we're not going to do that very often, but occasionally it is necessary. We looked at this miraculous catch of fish that Jesus brought into Peter's boat. And this event was followed by Peter's confession that he is a sinful man and he asks Jesus to leave. By the way, who just asked Jesus to leave? That's right, the demons said, Jesus, why don't you just go away? It's exactly what Peter said to Jesus. Why don't you just go away? Once you've been found out who you are, natural instinct. Jesus, you're too pure, too holy. Go away from me. But Jesus said, no, no, no. How about instead you come with me? Leave everything behind. Peter agreed, ultimately left everything behind, and he goes on to become this outspoken leader of the disciples and this huge, huge part of the early church. But now we're going backwards, and we're seeing what happened just before, maybe the day before, we don't know, that miraculous catch of fish to set all of this up. Once again, we've got to return to John to give a little bit more of the story. Simon Peter's little brother, his name is Andrew, was a follower of John the Baptist. He had met Jesus previous to this encounter. One day, he was with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist had looked up and said, See him? That man? That there? That is the spotless Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And Andrew and his buddy are like, It is? 
Cool. And so they leave John the Baptist and they follow Jesus to wherever he's going and they spend the whole day with him, it says, talking with Jesus and learning about Jesus. And it says that after that encounter, Peter, Andrew immediately runs home and tells his brother Simon, hey, we have found the Messiah. Can you imagine the excitement in the little boy's voice? Because he would have been a very young man. It says that Simon then was brought to Jesus. So this is phase two. Andrew finds Jesus, tells Simon, Simon then goes with Andrew to meet Jesus. This is the famous scene where Jesus says, Simon, you know what? I've got a new name for you. How about Peter? Oh, that's, that happened before? Yeah, that happened before. But then John just drops it completely, and the rest we don't know about. So we've got to go to Luke to find the rest of the story. We get to Luke 4. It doesn't appear that Peter is a believer yet. And in fact, we know he's not because it's not till chapter 5. Watching and learning, maybe. Andrew maybe has stuck around Jesus. We don't know. Maybe, maybe Andrew and Simon Peter were at church that morning and they saw the demon-possessed man be healed. And then they're like, oh, I got an idea. My mom, my mom-in-law, she's not feeling real well. She's doing really bad. Maybe Jesus could help us out. I kind of think it was a little brother's idea. Hey, Simon, why don't we have Jesus come over to our house? Maybe he can help. Remember, he'd already told Peter that he thought Jesus was the Messiah. Luke also reveals another really important piece of information about Peter. He's married. Why is that a big deal? Because he was probably the only disciple who was. He was the oldest of all the disciples. We're very convinced of that. But he was probably the only one who was married when he left everything to follow Jesus. Consider that when you think about leaving everything to follow Jesus. It's likely the rest of them were much, much younger than him. Then it says that Jesus rebuked the fever. Once again, he just spoke to it and it left her. He commanded the fever to leave. Yes, even viruses are forced to obey the commands of Jesus. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> that is truth. They don't have a choice. Consider that in the world in which we live. If you were with us earlier this year, I mean, it was quite a while ago. You'd have to have pretty good memory at this point. And we talked briefly about this miracle, and the reason we did was because of the ending. I love the ending. It's so perfect for this time of year. This woman is literally dying. She is on her deathbed. Her only hope is this miraculous healing of Jesus. Jesus comes in. There's no record of any dialogue, only that he shuts down the illness with just his words once again. And what does the woman do? It says she gets up, and the first thing she does is head to the kitchen to begin to offer her gratitude, her thankfulness, to the only way she knows how, hospitality. And Jesus, I, I can't thank you enough for bringing me back to life, so uh, hey, what you want for dinner? Seems like an odd question, but how important is that to her, that she's able to provide for her Savior? <laughs> think about that, how simple that is. What does Jesus require of us? Oh, not a lot. What would you like for dinner, man? What a response. What a response. As you can imagine then, after these two miracles and this great teaching on this one day, word has traveled fast. If they had the internet, it would have been blowing up. The videos would have gone viral. Things would have been going crazy. The events would have been spread all over. So how fast is word of mouth spread? Well, verse 40 tells us. Same day at sunset. Sabbath now over. The people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you were the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. What 
a day. The word had spread so quickly and Jesus honors these people's faith as they are willing to bring people. Now, it was evening. Why does this matter? Well, the Sabbath was over. Why does that matter? Well, now people could go and they could get their sick loved ones and they could carry them to Jesus. You see, there was a prohibition on lifting heavy objects on the Sabbath. People couldn't bring these sick people to Jesus. That was now over. There was also a restriction on travel during the Sabbath. That was now over. And oh, by the way, the restrictions on healing were over too. So Jesus could now officially heal people because the Sabbath was over. If you don't know, that was something that the religious leaders were always accusing Jesus of. They believed it was wrong for him to heal on the Sabbath. He corrected them time and time and time and time again, but they never let it go. They refused to let that one go. This is, there's one more little thing to point out in this little tiny nugget. It's that at the beginning, you know, Jesus comes to Capernaum after healing that boy's son, and watch what happened in one day. Everyone is bringing everyone to Jesus for healing. It's incredible. At the end of the day, what's he doing? Hey, don't tell anybody. Hey, don't tell anybody. He often asks people that. In verse 35 and 41, he commands the demons, do not speak. The demons know exactly who he is, and he does not want them to share that information. He has a desire to keep part of his identity a secret. He does not reveal himself as the Messiah to even the disciples until chapter 9 of the book of Luke. And publicly, he doesn't really begin to embrace that identity until the last week of his life. Why? Why? Because it's not until that point, after all the teachings, after all the healings, after the example that he laid down, that people could potentially look at him and go, oh, you're that kind of Messiah. We thought you were, mm, but this is who you really are. So he chooses not to reveal that till much later. Let's finish the text, verse 42. At daybreak, the next day, here we go, he went out to a solitary place. Anybody feel like doing that this week after Thanksgiving? I mean, he's going to get out of the house for a while. Anybody? No, just a few of you. Okay. He went to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The poor guy, he, he just can't be left alone. He heads out to a solitary place alone. He told no one where he was going, and yet they found him anyway. They beg him to stay. Why? Why? Did they love his teachings? Yeah, there was some curiosity and fascination with the teachings of Jesus, sure. Did they think that maybe he was some sort of wizard performing all these signs and wonders? You better believe it. Nobody else had ever done those things before. So they were like, what's going on? They don't want the show to leave town. This is cool to have in your town, right? They don't want him to go away. I would just say that probably their motives weren't completely uh, pure in their desire for Jesus to stay. He insisted he must go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns. He had to keep spreading the word, and that is an incredible summary of all that Jesus taught, the good news of the kingdom of God. How amazing is it that on November 28th in 2021, on the eve of the Christmas season, we are still proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Oh my goodness, think about how good that is. And we will continue to do that, rest assured. 
In the text that we'll be studying the next several weeks after Christmas, Luke is going to continue to share with us these miracles of Jesus. There's a whole bunch in this book. And I just want to remind you that these supernatural occurrences, absolutely, they're completely supernatural, completely beyond explanation as far as we are concerned in our man-made world. But what we must remember is what they actually accomplish. What do they do, at least for the individual? A miracle is simply God's way of making things right restoring them to exactly the way he intended for them to be in the first place. The pain gone, the disability restored, the sin forgiven, and on and on the list goes. All of those things are as a result of the fall of man. And so what seems impossible to us is just God showing us, hey, hey, this is how it will ultimately be for all eternity, just so you know. As Luke shares these miracles with us, How does it help us be certain? How does it help us be certain of our faith in Jesus Christ? Where do we fall? Well, let's start with this. There are people watching today. There are people listening today who have been healed by God, amen? Amen. I know there's more of you than two. Sorry. There have been people in this room that have been restored by Jesus. Can I just tell you how much we would love to hear your story? Where would we be if these stories weren't recorded for us in Scripture of these individuals who were healed, restored, redeemed by Jesus Christ? We'd be very lost is where it would be. There's no different today. Every person, like every person he healed in Scripture had a story to tell, and you better believe they did. So do you. And this is your opportunity. He has restored you for a purpose. And part of that purpose is to share your story with others. Because you and I, you could think you have the most insignificant story in the world. Doesn't matter. We have no idea how our story could impact someone else's life. Or just might help save them. So as we go through these healings, these miracles throughout the start of the year, if God leads you to share your story with us, please do. Please do. There's a good chance that if God's leading to do that, it's because it ties perfectly into one of the stories we're going to reveal from Scripture. And and God will just fuse those things together because that's how God does. And I love it when God does that, but he needs you to participate. So don't keep it to yourself. Just put a note on that Connect card. I'll give you a call this week. Hey, Chris, I'd love to share my story. You don't have to get up here and do it. We've got video technology, man. We've got all kinds of things. We can just audio record you. We can, I can get a puppet. We can do whatever, you know? I don't even care. We just want to share. Did I say that? We just want to share your story with other people. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you look at Jesus and you thought that, you know what? Ah, it's a great story. Seems like a great guy, but you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. I'm not good enough. For him, I'm here because my family's here. I'm here because God brought me online, however. But you just don't feel like you have enough faith. Maybe you feel like you've done too much wrong. You're too far gone. You're not good enough. If that is you, then I just got to direct you back to Peter from last week. He didn't think he was good enough either. And you might think, yeah, but he was Peter. Yeah, he was Peter. And he'd heard the teachings of Jesus more than once, once literally sitting in his very own boat. He'd witnessed the healing power of Jesus to his very own mother-in-law right in front of his face. That didn't change his mind. He saw this miraculous catch of fish come into his boat. His own brother believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And what did Peter see? He saw himself as a sinner, 
unworthy to be even in the presence of Jesus. So don't think you're like, oh, I'm just not strong. <laughs> Why look at his example? Because Jesus wants to tell you the same thing he told Peter, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, just follow me. And it might sound childish, and maybe you haven't heard it in a while, but it's nothing childish about this at all. Jesus loves you. <laughs> I can't say it any simpler than that. He loves you, and oh, by the way, he died for you. Look at Peter. Look at what he became, the fearless leader of the disciples, ultimately who gave his life for the cause of Christ, and no, his story isn't over. He had some flaws along the way, for sure, but Jesus wants us to do the same, to just offer our lives up to him, Amen. to allow him to make us a new creation, to commit to serving him, to sharing what he has done with our lives to whoever will listen. That's what it's about. And I'm so thankful for these words, Father God, as we close this part of the service and resume worship and, and remember the sacrifice that you made for us, Father God, we're so grateful. We are so grateful. A day in the life of Jesus. He starts the morning at church teaching the word. He heals in the presence of the, his people within the synagogue. He, he goes to an individual's house, seemingly unknown to everyone else, and, and heals a, an older lady of, a, of some type of illness. Father, we see the example of the gratitude she shows. May we all show that same gratitude to you for what you do in our life, no matter how simple or how huge. Father, we see this long day coming to an end in the evening, and instead of resting, what do you do? Well, you set yourself out there and make yourself available for all who would come. It doesn't seem like that line ever ended. It doesn't seem like people ever stopped coming that day. It seemed like you were able to touch every single person that were brought, was brought to you on that particular day. Father, that's who you are. You come in our midst today and you long to touch us, to heal us, to restore us, to redeem us. If we don't know you, Father, you call us to your side right now to become one of your children. Father, if we're long in your presence, we've known you for years, then you just simply call us in this season to bring whatever it is we have placed between you and I and lay it down at the foot of the cross. Father, take those burdens, take that shame, take that pain, that issue, that thing we're dealing with, and just give it to you fully and completely and allow us to embrace this season of thanksgiving and the opportunity we have to be here this morning to worship you, Father, we love you. And if there's anyone here that has a story to share, as we all do, I pray that your spirit moves them over the next few weeks to share that with us so we can see exactly how that fits in your plan here at Berea. Father, we love you. 